Section twenty eight of the Journals of Robert Falcon Scott. Volume one by Robert Falcon Scott. This is a LibriVox recording. Section twenty eight. Chapter thirteen. Waiting for the Sun. Part two. Sunday, August the twentieth. The long expected blizzard came yesterday. A good, honest blow. The drift vanishing long before the wind. This and the rise of temperature, to two degrees, has smoothed and polished all ice or snow surfaces. A few days ago I could walk anywhere in my soft finesco with sealskin soles. Today it needed great caution to prevent tumbles. I think there has been a good deal of ablation. The sky is clear today, but the wind still strong, though warm. I went along the shore of the North Bay, and climbed to the glacier over one of the drifted faults in the ice-face. It is steep and slippery, but by this way one can arrive above the ramp without touching rock, and thus avoid cutting soft footwear. The ice-problems in our neighbourhood become more fascinating and elusive, as one re-examines them by the returning light. Some will be solved. Monday, August the 21st. Weights and measurements last evening. We have remained surprisingly constant. There seems to have been improvement in lung power, and grip is shown by spirometer and dynamometer, but weights have altered very little. I have gone up nearly three pounds in winter, but the increase has occurred during the last month, when I have been taking more exercise. Certainly there is every reason to be satisfied with the general state of health. The ponies are becoming a handful. Three of the four exercised to-day so far have run away. Christopher and Snippets broke away from Oates, and Victor from Bowers. Nothing but high spirits. There is no vice in these animals, but I fear we are going to have trouble with sledges and snowshoes. At present the soldier dare not issue Oates, or the animals would become quite unmanageable. Bran is running low. He wishes he had more of it. Tuesday, August the 22nd. I am renewing study of glacier problems. The face of the ice-cliff, three hundred yards east of the homestead, is full of enigmas. Yesterday evening Ponting gave us a lecture on his Indian travels. He is very frank in acknowledging his debt to guide-books for information. Nevertheless, he tells his story well, and his slides are wonderful. In personal reminiscence he is distinctly dramatic. He thrilled us a good deal last night with a vivid description of a sunrise in the sacred city of Benares. In the first dim light, the waiting, praying multitude of bathers, the wonderful ritual and its incessant performance. Then, as the sun approaches, the hush, the effect of thousands of worshippers waiting in silence, a silence to be felt. Finally, as the first rays appear, the swelling roar of a single word from tens of thousands of throats, Ambar. It was artistic to follow this picture of life with the gruesome horrors of the gat, this impressionist style of lecturing is very attractive, and must essentially cover a great deal of ground. So we saw Jaipur, Udaipur, Darjeeling, and a confusing number of places, temples, monuments, and tombs in profusion, with remarkable pictures of the wonderful Taj Mahal, horses, elephants, alligators, wild boars, and flamingos, warriors, fakirs, and nonch girls, an impression here and an impression there. It is worth remembering how attractive this style can be. In lecturing one is inclined to give too much attention to connecting links which join one episode to another. A lecture need not be a connected story, 
Perhaps it is better it should not be. It was my night on duty last night, and I watched the oncoming of a blizzard with exceptional beginnings. The sky became very gradually overcast between 1 and 4 a.m. About 2.30 the temperature rose on a steep grade from minus 20 degrees to minus 3 degrees. The barometer was falling rapidly for these regions. Soon after 4 the wind came with a rush, but without snow or drift. For a time it was more gusty than has ever been recorded even in this region. In one gust the wind rose from 4 to 68 miles per hour and fell again to twenty miles per hour within a minute. Another reached eighty miles per hour, but not from such a low point of origin. The effect in the hut was curious. For a space all would be quiet. Then a shattering blast would descend with a clatter and rattle past ventilator and chimneys. So sudden, so threatening, that it was comforting to remember the solid structure of our building. The suction of such a gust is so heavy that even the heavy snow-covered roof of the stable, completely sheltered on the lee side of the main building, is violently shaken. One could well imagine the plight of our adventurers at Cape Crozier, when their roof was destroyed. The snow which came at six lessened the gustiness, and brought the ordinary phenomena of a blizzard. It is blowing hard today, with broken windy clouds and roving bodies of drift. A wild day for the return of the sun. Had it been fine to-day, we should have seen the sun for the first time. Yesterday it shone on the lower foothills to the west, but to-day we see nothing but gilded drift-clouds. Yet it is grand to have daylight rushing at one. Wednesday, August the 23rd. We toasted the sun in Champagne last night, coupling Victor Campbell's name as his birthday coincides. The return of the sun could not be appreciated, as we have not had a glimpse of it, and the taste of the champagne went wholly unappreciated. It was a very mild revel. Meanwhile, the gale continues. Its full force broke last night, with an average of nearly seventy miles per hour for some hours. The temperature has been up to ten degrees, and the snowfall heavy. At seven this morning the air was thicker, with whirling drift, than it has ever been. It seems as though the violence of the storms, which succeed our rare spells of fine weather, is in proportion to the duration of the spells. Thursday, August the 24th. Another night and day of furious wind and drift, and still no sign of the end. The temperature has been as high as sixteen degrees. Now and again the snow ceases, and then the drift rapidly diminishes. But such an interval is soon followed by fresh clouds of snow. It is quite warm outside. I can go about with head uncovered, which leads me to suppose that one does get hardened to cold to some extent, for I suppose one would not wish to remain uncovered in a storm in England if the temperature showed sixteen degrees of frost. This is the third day of confinement to the hut. It grows tedious, but there is no help, as it is too thick to see more than a few yards out of doors. Friday, August the 25th. The gale continued all night, and it blows hard this morning, but the sky is clear, the drift has ceased, and the few whaleback clouds about Erebus carry a promise of improving conditions. Last night there was an intensely black cloud, low on the northern horizon, but for the earlier experience of winter one would have sworn to it as a water-sky, but I think the phenomenon is due to the shadow of retreating drift-clouds. This morning the sky is clear to the north, so that the sea-ice cannot have broken out in the sound. 
During snowy gales it is almost necessary to dress oneself in wind-clothes if one ventures outside for the briefest periods. Exposed woollen or cloth materials become heavy with powdery crystals in a minute or two, and when brought into the warmth of the hut are soon wringing wet. Where there is no drift it is quicker and easier to slip on an overcoat. It is not often I have a sentimental attachment for articles of clothing, but I must confess an affection for my veteran uniform overcoat, inspired by its persistent utility. I find that it is twenty-three years of age, and can testify to its strenuous existence. It has been spared neither rain, wind, nor salt sea-spray, tropic heat, nor arctic cold. It has outlived many sets of buttons, from their glittering gilded youth to green old age and it supports its four-striped shoulder-straps as gaily as the single lace ring of the earlier days which proclaimed it the possession of a humble sub-lieutenant. Withal, it is still a very long way from the fate of the one-horse shay. Taylor gave us his final physiographical lecture last night. It was completely illustrated with slides made from our own negatives, Ponting's alpine work, and the choicest illustrations of certain scientific books. The preparation of the slides has involved a good deal of work for Ponting, as well as for the lecturer. The lecture dealt with ice erosion, and the pictures made it easy to follow the comparison of our own mountain forms and glacial contours with those that have received so much attention elsewhere. Noticeable differences are the absence of moraine material on the lower surfaces of our glaciers, their relatively insignificant movement, their steep sides, etc., it is difficult to convey the bearing of the difference or similarity of various features common to the pictures under comparison without their aid. It is sufficient to note that the points to which the lecturer called attention were pretty obvious, and the lecture was exceedingly instructive. The origin of cirques or cums, of which we have remarkably fine examples, is still a little mysterious. One notes also the requirement of observation which might throw light on the erosion of previous ages. After Taylor's effort, Ponting showed a number of very beautiful slides of alpine scenery. Not a few are triumphs of the photographer's art. As a wind-up, Ponting took a flashlight photograph of our hut, converted into a lecture hall. A certain amount of faking will be required, but I think this is very allowable under the circumstances. Oates tells me that one of the ponies, Snippets, will eat blubber. The possible uses of such an animal are remarkable. The gravel on the north side of the hut, against which the stable is built, has been slowly but surely worn down, leaving gaps under the boarding. Through these gaps in our floor we get an unpleasantly strong stable effluvium, especially when the wind is strong. We are trying to stuff the holes up, but have not had much success so far. Saturday, August the 26th. A dying wind and clear sky yesterday, and almost calm today. The noon sun is cut off by the long low-foot slope of Erebus, which runs to Cape Royds. Went up the ramp at noon yesterday, and found no advantage. One should go over the flow to get the earliest sight, and yesterday afternoon Evans caught a last glimpse of the upper limb from that situation, whilst Simpson saw the same from Windvane Hill. The ponies are very buckish, and can scarcely be held in at exercise. It seems certain that they feel the return of daylight. They were out in morning and afternoon yesterday. Oates and Anton took out Christopher and Snippets rather later. Both ponies broke away within fifty yards of the stable and galloped away over the flow. It was nearly an hour before they could be rounded up. 
Such escapades are the result of high spirits. There is no vice in the animals. We have had comparatively little aurora of late, but last night was an exception. There was a good display at 3 a.m. P.M. Just before lunch the sunshine could be seen gilding the flow, and Ponting and I walked out to the bergs. The nearest one has been overturned and is easily climbed. From the top we could see the sun clear over the rugged outline of Cape Barn. It was glorious to stand bathed in brilliant sunshine once more. We felt very young, sang, and cheered. We were reminded of a bright frosty morning in England. Everything sparkled, and the air had the same crisp feel. There is little new to be said of the return of the sun in polar regions, yet it is such a very real and important event that one cannot pass it in silence. It changes the outlook on life of every individual. Foul weather is robbed of its terrors. If it is stormy to-day, it will be fine to-morrow, or the next day, and each day's delay will mean a brighter outlook when the sky is clear. Climb the ramp in the afternoon. The shouts and songs of men and the neighing of horses borne to my ears as I clambered over its kopjes. I am now pretty well convinced that the ramp is a moraine resting on a platform of ice. The sun rested on the sunshine recorder for a few minutes, but made no visible impression. We did not get our first record in the discovery until September. It is surprising that so little heat should be associated with such a flood of light. Sunday, August the 27th. Overcast sky and chill southeasterly wind. Sunday routine. No one very active. Had a run to South Bay over Domain. Monday, August the 28th. Ponting and Gran went round the bergs late last night. On returning, they saw a dog coming over the floe from the north. The animal rushed towards and leapt about them with every sign of intense joy. Then they realised that it was our long-lost Julik. His mane was crusted with blood, and he smelt strongly of seal-blubber. His stomach was full, but the sharpness of backbone showed that this condition had only been temporary. Daylight he looks very fit and strong, and he is evidently very pleased to be home again. We are absolutely at a loss to account for his adventures. It is exactly a month since he was missed. What on earth can have happened to him all this time? One would give a great deal to hear his tale. Everything is against the theory that he was a willful absentee. His previous habits and his joy at getting back. If he wished to get back, he cannot have been lost anywhere in the neighbourhood, for, as Mears says, the barking of the station dogs can be heard at least seven or eight miles away in calm weather besides which there are tracks everywhere, and unmistakable landmarks to guide man or beast. I cannot but think that the animal has been cut off, but this can only have happened by his being carried away on broken sea-ice. As far as we know, the open water has never been nearer than ten or twelve miles at least. It is another enigma. On Saturday last a balloon was sent up. The thread was found broken a mile away. Bowers and Simpson walked many miles in search of the instrument, but could find no trace of it. The theory now propounded is that if there is strong differential movement in air currents, the thread is not strong enough to stand the strain as the balloon passes from one current to another. It is amazing, and forces the employment of a new system. It is now proposed to discard the thread and attach the instrument to a flag and staff, which, it is hoped, will plant itself in the snow on falling. The sun is shining into the hut windows. 
already sunbeams rest on the opposite walls. I have mentioned the curious cones which are the conspicuous feature of our ramp scenery. They stand from eight to twenty feet in height, some irregular, but a number quite perfectly conical in outline. Today Taylor and Gran took a pick and crowbar and started to dig into one of the smaller ones. After removing a certain amount of loose rubble, they came on solid rock, kenite, having two or three irregular cracks traversing the exposed surface. It was only with great trouble they removed one or two of the smallest fragments, severed by these cracks. There was no sign of ice. This gives a great leg-up to the debris cone theory. Dimitri and Clisso took two small teams of dogs to Cape Royds today. They found some dog footprints near the hut, but I think these were not made by Julik. Dimitri points far to the west as the scene of that animal's adventures. Parties from Cape Broids always bring a number of illustrated papers, which must have been brought down by the Nimrod on her last visit. The ostensible object is to provide amusement for our Russian companions, but as a matter of fact everyone finds them interesting. Tuesday, August the 29th. I find that the card of the Sunshine Recorder showed an hour and a half's burn yesterday, and was very faintly marked on Saturday. Already, therefore, the sun has given us warmth, even if it can only be measured instrumentally. Last night Mears told us of his adventures in and about Lolo Land, a wild Central Asian country nominally tributary to Lhasa. He had no pictures and very makeshift maps, yet he held us really in trance for nearly two hours by the sheer interest of his adventures. The spirit of the wanderer is in Mears's blood. He has no happiness but in the wild places of the earth. I have never met so extreme a type. Even now he is looking forward to getting away by himself to Hut Point, tired already of our scant measure of civilization. He has keen natural powers of observation for all practical facts, and a quite prodigious memory for such things. But a lack of scientific training causes the acceptance of exaggerated appearances which so often present themselves to travellers when unfamiliar objects are first seen. For instance, when the spore of some unknown beast is described as six inches across, one shrewdly guesses that a cold scientific measurement would have reduced this figure by nearly a half. So it is with mountains, cliffs, waterfalls, etc. With all deduction on this account, the lecture was extraordinarily interesting. Mears lost his companion and leader, poor Brook, on the expedition which he described to us. The party started up the Yangtze, travelling from Shanghai to Hankow, and thence to Yichang by steamer, then by houseboat, towed by coolies, through wonderful gorges, and one dangerous rapid to Chongqing and Chengtu. In those parts the travellers always took the three principal rooms of the inn they patronised, the cost a hundred and fifty cash, something less than fourpence, oranges twenty a penny, the coolies with hundred-pound loads would cover thirty to forty miles a day, Salt is got in bores sunk with bamboos to nearly a mile in length. It takes two or three generations to sink a bore. The lecturer described the Chinese frontier town, Quan Chin, its people, its products, chiefly medicinal musk pods, from musk deer. Here also the wonderful ancient damming of the river, and a temple to the constructor, who wrote, twenty centuries ago, Dig out your ditches, but keep your banks low. On we were taken along mountain trails, over high snow-filled passes, and across rivers on bamboo bridges to Wasu, a timber centre from which great rafts of lumber are shot down the river, 
over fearsome rapids, freighted with Chinamen. "'They generally came through all right,' said the lecturer. "'Higher up the river, men, lived the peaceful Ching-Ming people, an ancient Aboriginal stock, and beyond these the wild tribes, the Lolo themselves. They made doubtful friends with a chief preparing for war.' Mears described a feast given to them in a barbaric hall, hung with skins and weapons, the men clad in buckskin dyed red, and bristling with arms, barbaric dishes, barbaric music. Then the hunt for new animals, the Chinese tarkin, the party-coloured bear, blue mountain sheep, the golden-haired monkey, and talk of new fruits and flowers, and a host of little-known birds. More adventures among the wild tribes of the mountains— the white llamas, the black llamas, and phallic worship, curious prehistoric caves with ancient terracotta figures resembling only others found in Japan, and supplying a curious link, a feudal system running with well-oiled wheels, the happiest of communities, a separation, temporary, from Brooke, who wrote in his diary that the tribes were very friendly and seemed anxious to help him, and was killed on the day following, the truth hard to gather, the recovery of his body, etc., as he left the country, the Nepalese ambassador arrives, returning from Pekin, with large escort, and bound for Lhasa. The ambassador half-demented, and Mears, who speaks many languages, is begged by ambassador and escort to accompany the party. He is obliged to miss this chance of a lifetime. This is the meagrest outline of the tale which Mears adorned with a hundred incidental facts. For instance, he told us of the Lolo trade in green waxfly, the insect is propagated seasonally by thousands of Chinese who subsist on the sale of the wax produced, but all insects die between seasons. At the commencement of each season there is a market to which the wild hill lolos bring countless tiny bamboo boxes, each containing a male and female insect, the breeding of which is their share in the industry. We are all adventurers here, I suppose, and wild doings in wild countries appeal to us as nothing else could do. It is good to know that there remain wild corners of this dreadfully civilised world. We have had a bright fine day. This morning a balloon was sent up without thread, and with the flag device to which I have alluded. It went slowly but steadily to the north, and so over the barn glacier. It was difficult to follow with glasses frequently clouding with the breath, but we saw the instrument detached when the slow match burned out. I am afraid there is no doubt it fell on the glacier, and there is little hope of recovering it. We have now decided to use a thread again, but to send the bobbin up with the balloon, so that it unwinds from that end, and there will be no friction when it touches the snow or rock. This investigation of upper air conditions is proving a very difficult matter, but we are not beaten yet. Wednesday, August the 30th. Fine, bright day. The thread of the balloon sent up today broke very short off through some fault in the cage, holding the bobbin. By good luck the instrument was found in the North Bay, and held a record. This is the fifth record, showing a constant inversion of temperature for a few hundred feet, and then a gradual fall, so that the temperature of the surface is not reached again for two thousand or three thousand feet. The establishment of this fact repays much of the trouble caused by the ascents. Thursday, August the 31st, went round about the domain and ramp with Wilson. We are now pretty well decided as to certain matters that puzzled us at first. The ramp is undoubtedly a moraine, supported on the decaying end of the glacier. 
A great deal of the underlying ice is exposed, but we had doubts as to whether this ice was not the result of winter drifting and summer thawing. We have a little difference of opinion as to whether this moraine material has been brought down in surface layers or pushed up from the bottom ice layers, as in alpine glaciers. There is no doubt that the glacier is retreating with comparative rapidity, and this leads us to account for the various ice slabs about the hut as remains of the glacier. But a puzzling fact confronts this proposition in the discovery of penguin feathers in the lower strata of ice in both ice caves. The shifting of levels in the moraine material would account for the drying up of some lakes and the terrace formations in others, whilst curious trenches in the ground are obviously due to cracks in the ice beneath. We are now quite convinced that the queer cones on the ramp are merely the result of the weathering of big blocks of agglomerate. As weathering results, they appear unique. We have not yet a satisfactory explanation of the broad roadway faults that traverse every small eminence in our immediate region. They must originate from the unequal weathering of lava flows, but it is difficult to imagine the process. The dip of the lavas on our cape corresponds with that of the lavas of Inaccessible Island, and points to an eruptive centre to the south and not towards Erebus. Here is food for reflection for the geologists. The wind blew quite hard from the north-northwest on Wednesday night, fell calm in the day, and came from the southeast with snow as we started to return from our walk. There was a full blizzard by the time we reached the hut. End of chapter 13, part 2